You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World. Hello, I'm Carrie Wong. I'm an assistant professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Alex Standish. Alex is Associate Professor of Geography Education at the IOE and Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. He is a member of the Cambridge Assessment Higher Education National Forum. Alex is also advisor to the Department for Education, the Mayor's Office, Cambridge examinations, as well as several London schools with respect to curriculum and teacher education. Alex previously taught at Western Connecticut State University and completed his PhD at Rutgers University, New Jersey. His research focuses on the relationship between disciplinary knowledge and school subjects in the curriculum. He is also interested in geography's epistemology and recontextualization as the school subject curriculum design and planning, social and political influences on curricula related to globalism and political issues. At the IOE, Alex works in teacher training and supervises master's and doctoral students. We're going to chat to Alex today about the relationship between disciplinary knowledge and school subjects in the curriculum and his new book as part of the Knowledge and the Curriculum series by UCL Press on what should schools teach, disciplines, Subjects and the Pursuit of Truth. Alex, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. Alex, just to start off our chat, I'm really curious to know, how did you become involved in education? Did you enjoy school? Uh, yes, I enjoyed school. I uh, was very keen on geography and, and uh, when I was in school. I, was in, I did A-levels in geography, maths and biology. But I think I found geography just that bit more interesting, a bit more it's a very broad subject, and so you can study things like geology, you can study things about the economy and globalization, you obviously study about different countries. So I think it's, it's broadness appealed to me. And so when I was at university, decided to go into teaching. I come from a family of teachers. My father was a head teacher, and my older brother is also a teacher. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. So family trait then. Did you have a favorite teacher or tutor then that inspired you during your old school days? Uh, that's a good question. I did have a very a couple of inspiring geography teachers, one of whom was quite aptly named Mr. Field. And he did take us out on some field work to, to Wales uh, and other places. I was also inspired by some maths teachers. You know, I, I, I found maths, found the problem solving side of maths very interesting. I remember at A-levels having some quite, you know, you develop slightly closer relationships with your teachers and often you were sort of working on problems together because it was it was sort of a collective endeavor to solve these equations or statistics and so forth. So I, yeah, I was, I was always interested in academic side of things. Wow, that's very interesting. I think the audience would also, you know, love to learn more about your research. Perhaps you can tell the audience a little bit about what is geography's epistemology and why it matters? 
you know, I think, I, I mean, I was a, I've been a, a primary school teacher, a secondary school teacher and a university teacher. And so I've uh, had a good uh, range of mm-hmm. curricular experiences. I think when I was, when I was teaching in secondary school, I became more aware of certain themes within the curriculum that I thought were maybe bias is too strong of a word, but certain things that seem to certain messages, I think, in the curriculum. So this is in geography, things like in, in relation to development, which was sort of proposing quite sort of, you know, small scale, very kind of low level development. There were some quite anti-population messages, as in anti-population growth messages. So I, I think I was detecting maybe perhaps a Western bias in aspects of the curriculum. And so, yeah, I became interested in why, you know, why is this in the curriculum? Why is that? And so I, when I was still teaching, I did a master's at, at Canterbury Christchurch University College, in which I, yeah, I did a study of the, the UK geography curriculum and, and just got into reading about it, about curriculum change, how the national curriculum was made. And then I left school teaching and went to Rutgers University where I I did some research on the American curriculum, um, particularly, again, sort of themes around citizenship, globalization, and again, how these were shaping the curriculum and how the curriculum changed over time. In terms of geography's epistemology, geography is quite an unusual subject in that it it has quite a loose, I'd say, loose disciplinary framework, or, or it certainly is influenced by the epistemology from, from a range of subjects, because geography is, if you like, a bridging subject in that it it brings together economics, biology, meteorology, demography, and so forth. You, you can study all these things through geography, but what the geographer's perspective to, is to do is to integrate those things and look at how those things come together, how those different aspects of, or layers of the surface of the Earth come together and give rise to spatial patterns, spatial distributions, and the uniqueness of particular places and regions. So geographers draw on different disciplines and we synthesize knowledge and we look for interconnections, interrelatedness of things. Part of that interrelationship is about the human and the physical world. So we bridge the natural and the, the social sciences, which again is what interested me about it, this, this that you can, you can look at both and you can look at the interrelatedness. So it's a particular way of thinking, which obviously every discipline has, but I particularly like the way we explore the interrelationship between the physical and the social yeah, and I think we would all agree that these are kind of important skills to have nowadays as well when we're thinking about, you know, being a global citizen and understanding what's happening all around the world, especially across disciplines and how we answer questions. And I think this then leads kind of nicely into my next question, which is then how do we decide, you know, what to learn in schools, right? So given your experience having taught across many different school settings, what are school subjects for and how are they related to say, university disciplines, in your opinion. Okay, so we're coming on to the topic of our book, which is the the second book, the second edition of this book, which I'm one of the editors, Alpha Segal Cuthbert is the the other editor. And then we've had different people write chapters based on their particular subject. So we're trying to explore the question of, yeah, what is a school subject? And I think the idea for this book came because I asked somebody, I said, look, I'm looking for a reference that explains what, what a school subject is. And I couldn't find one. So in the end, we decided we need to go and write the book. But of course, you can write it for your own subject, but it's very hard to explain what someone else's subject mm. is. And that's one of the things you'll see in the book is that each subject is almost its own world. It's, you know, it has its own kind of concepts and ideas and ways of working. So they are quite unique. And, and I think what we've tried to do is draw out some themes in terms of, in terms of how, you know, what there, there are some common themes across subjects, some relationship to university knowledge I can go into. 
you know, one way to think about it is, I mean, I, I guess originally the curriculum in the when schools came about in the in the 19th century, obviously, would have been very religious. It would have been very much moral instruction and so forth. But in the 20th century, liberal education, progressive education, certain ideas started to influence the curriculum. And, and obviously, uh, university subjects were quite involved in, in creating the school curriculum, particularly around exams. And so the, we started to get this idea that there was a relationship between schools, subjects and university disciplines and that mm-hmm. perhaps one led was a preparation for the other. But of course, you know, school subjects are different from universities. You know, they, we're dealing with children. We are wanting to, you know, you're wanting to shape children, individuals, their character. And so, you know, the, the sort of the whole mission of the school, it, it comes into play. Whereas a university, obviously, you're, you're there to study a subject and, and, and that's quite a different thing. You're an adult and you're more independent. That, that it, you're not, the, the university lecturers are not in loco parentis. They're not caring for you as outside of lecture or what have you. So, yes, the schools are a bit different. And we also must recognise they're doing different things. I've talked already about the relationship between universities and schools. But obviously, there are, you know, most, maybe about half of students won't go on to university. They'll maybe go on to further education or technical education or, or, or into jobs and so forth. So we must recognise that school subjects are trying to do different things. They're not trying to do one thing. And so if we take Professor Gert Biesta, somebody who we use quite a bit in the book, he's a professor in Ireland at, at Maynooth University. And he wrote a book called Good Education in an, in an Age of Measurement, which is um, very useful. And he says there are three things that school subjects do. They provide qualifications, therefore socialization. And the third one is what he calls subjectification, which I'll explain. So firstly, qualifications, you know, school subjects enable you to study a subject and then demonstrate what you've learned in that subject. So they validate learning and they enable you to gain some qualifications. You come out of school and you think about, obviously, you know, maths, sciences, English are, you know, some of the first subjects that an employer would look, for example. And so to get for a job into the employment market, then uh, qualifications are obviously a proxy measure of capabilities to apply yourself, of, you know, commitment, hard work and so forth. So so there's something employers want to see. And obviously you can go beyond just a narrow set of qualifications. So um, validating learning is the first thing. Secondly, you know, schools obviously play an important role in socializing young people. And unfortunately, in 2020, we saw just how much they were missed when children were not in school and their socialization was very much adversely affected by, you know, six plus months of, of being out of school. So in, and, and that's, that's sort of a broader maybe idea of school, but school subjects themselves also contain what we call social knowledge. They contain knowledge about your culture, about your society, you know, things like the National Health Service. You're introduced to intellectuals in your subject. So Jane Austen, Dylan Thomas, famous artists. So there's an amount of sort of cultural knowledge, some of which is going to be specific to your country and where you live. So, you know, if you're in school in Germany or in Korea or Australia, you know, the curriculum is going to be quite different. It's going to reflect something of where you live and who you're, who the people are that make up that culture. So, Yes, there's an amount of social knowledge and traditions and customs you learn through subjects. So that would be the, mm-hmm. the second thing. And the third one, he uh, Biesta says, is, is subjectification. And by that, he means he means sort of the, the formation of the individual and the individuals, you know, start to develop a sense of their self in relation to what they learn. OK, because you go into school, you know, you don't know a lot about the world. But as you learn, as you learn more about the world, you start to develop interests. 
and that interest could be in music, it could be in mm-hmm. um, literature, uh, it could be in maths, or it could be in geography, of course. So he says, we come into the world and the world comes into us. Okay, so as you're introduced to the world, as you're introduced to the world through the subjects, so that's one of the, the, the things subjects do. They introduce the world as, as an object of study, whether that object is musical, is music, is it art, is it literature, and you gain access to that world and you start to, and you, and you may or may not start to sort of see yourself reflected in that. So, you know, we all know some children will gravitate towards some ch- sub subjects or another subject just based on their affinity, their desires, you know, what they, what they warm to. So I've got two daughters, they're both musical and one of them's into Latin, one of them's into German. And, you know, they just, it's, you know, you can't predict that. And then other subjects they reject, you know, they're not into history. So you can see that you start to develop a sense of yourself, your interests through the curriculum, through the school curriculum. So your sense of self, your sense of identity, and even in relation to those other things I said, socialization about your country, where you live, you gain a sense of yourself and also a relationship or a, a sense of other people, the people in your local community and your nation and the wider world. Um, you mentioned global citizenship. You start to get a sense of the wider world and your place within it. That's fascinating. Thanks so much for that detailed response. And I think it, in effect, covers some of the, you know, my next question, also looking at the influences of the subject curriculum as well, as you mentioned, culture, the environment, the people around you. I hadn't really thought about identity as well, which is so true. I guess another question, because some of our listeners are younger as well, which subjects do you think younger students should study in school? You know, your idea about interdisciplinary learning and and really exploring what options there are and then finding your niche or interest is a fascinating one. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't don't know what subjects students are going to like, you know, and neither do they, okay? And so you've no idea if you're going to like history or religion unless you try it. Okay, so the idea is that you have a teacher who is should inspire you in, in their subject. And often, it, you know, you, you know, from your own experience, sometimes and you asked me that, didn't you? Did I have any inspiring teachers? It's sometimes it is down to the teacher who inspires you and another teacher is less inspiring. and You get turned off a subject. So, I mean, we use the phrase a broad and balanced curriculum. We want subjects that cover a range of domains of knowledge. So a curriculum should include the arts, humanities, sciences, mathematics, and those those are all different types of knowledge. So that involves conceptual knowledge, aesthetic knowledge, and ethical knowledge. So and each of those domains of knowledge are important. We, again, I said we want to we want the schools to develop rounded individuals, a, a sense of character. Yeah, you don't want somebody who, I mean, yes, over time you might specialize, but initially you want to be introduced to different types of questions. So We use the um, questions which actually go back to Plato. What is true? What is beautiful? And what is right? The school curriculum should introduce questions about what is true, what is beautiful, and what is right. And those aren't specific to a a particular discipline. So even within geography, I would say we address all three of those types of questions. We want to know you know, what places are like. We're trying to get accurate descriptions of them and or accurate accounts of the spread of a virus or something. It's just spatial distribution. And we want to know, we want to explore questions about beautiful landscapes. We often use the phrase in geography, awe and wonder. We want children to be 
introduced to places and cultures that they think, wow, that's amazing, that's interesting, that's different. So you're taking them beyond their experience to show them what is out there, that they could explore this this different world, but also questions of what is right. So we, you know, should more people live in urban areas? Should more people live in rural areas? Are we, how much harm are we doing to the environment? You know, what is the way to respond to global warming? These are all moral questions. So, you know, a good education explores different domains of knowledge and also the the specifics of different subjects. Mm -hmm. And just coming back to your point about, you know, obviously asking the right questions is so important and that's part of the curriculum design and so forth. I wondered a little bit based on, you know, your experience of uh, teacher training and working with teachers in schools, how can teachers and curriculum planners ensure that, you know, their subject speaks to the students? What are some things that they need to or you can instill in them to make sure that they pass that on to to the students and get them interested and excited about the subject? That's a good question. So if we're speaking about individual teachers, yeah, obviously, obviously we want teachers who are inspiring and that. But that, that teachers, I think, can do that in different ways. I, I don't think there is. I think in terms of teacher training, I think it's important that you know, uh, obviously, you know your subject well. But we teach, and this is in the the book as well, uh, we teach about the importance in the curriculum of bringing together the teacher, the pupil, and the subject, or the the knowledge, okay? And there's something called, there's continental tradition, as in European continent, called subject didactics, which is explained in the book. And the didactic triangle, we have teachers, um, the pupil, and the, the, the subject knowledge. And the idea is that in the classroom, those three things come together in order for, you know, interesting learning experiences to happen. So the, the questions of, you know, teachers involved in questions of what am I teaching? Why am I teaching it? And what is the best way to get this across? How am I going to inspire my pupils? You know, one thing I haven't said much about yet, uh, I mean, I'm talking about subjects at a, at a school subjects at quite a general level, but one of the big influences on a school subject is the school itself. Okay, so you know, I can say what geography is or what maths is and so forth, but and it obviously does have a relationship to the, to the university discipline. That's one influence on the, the school curriculum. But the other one is what type of school is it? Is this a, a religious school? Is it a secular school? Is it a technical school? Is it a more academic school? So each, each school has its own mission, has its own ethos. You know, I said earlier, it's about shaping individual, you know, shaping people for the future. And so, you know, when I speak to teachers, then that they have to consider the school ethos and values of the school play an important role in in shaping that subject. And one other thing that's important, which we look at in the book is, and I haven't said this also yet either, but we're living in a time when there's not a strong consensus on this answer to this question, what is a school subject? What should school teach? Schools teach. There's a lot of different views on this. And in particular, there are a lot of demands, I think, on teachers and schools, which are often motivated by good motivations but perhaps ask too much of schools so there's a there's a charity called parents and teachers for excellence which in 2019 started to create a log from the press of demands on the school curriculum and i think towards the end of the year they'd come up with about 120 different things that schools through the media were were saying schools should do this they were asking them to teach things like sleeping skills how to deal with pornography gardening um, you name it. It's almost like we, we put too much emphasis on schools. And so, you know, again, what we're trying to do with this book is say, well, you know, schools can't do everything. If you ask schools to do everything, 
they will do all these things very, very badly. Okay, you need to say, well, what is what is it the unique function of schools? What is it that they, they actually are supposed to do and supposed to do well? We draw on a book called In Defense of the School by Mashalan and Simons, and they recall the original Greek meaning of the, of the school. And the, the original Greek idea of the school was about, school was about rest, delay, freedom, study, discussion. Okay, and that sounds... That sounds a little odd. Obviously, you know, rest is not the first thing you associate with school or maybe freedom. But the point was, you know, in Greek society, going to school meant you didn't have to go to work. Okay, so you delayed having to go to work and you had the freedom to go and study and learn. And so important to the the original idea of the school was actually that there should be that school should be independent of some of the pressures in society around economic pressures, around political pressures and so forth. But today, you know, we hear lots about how, you know, schools need to be part of solving the, the environmental crisis. Schools need to address, you know, anti-racism. Um, and, and obviously, you know, these things should be raised as interesting questions, you know, for sort of ac- academic questions to consider and explore for children, but not to solve. OK, because schools should be a place of study not a place of solving society's problems. Yes, I, I really like that. Thanks for thanks for highlighting that. And I think it, it brings us nicely to a next set of questions I have relating to the current climates that we're in. With world events and news being more accessible now for young students, do you find that students are maybe more interested in world politics and geography class? Or you know, how has the curriculum changed over time, in your opinion? Building on what I was saying, I think it has become under more pressure, under more scrutiny, and a lot of people think it should be more, you know, relevant to kind of everyday needs. Which, as I said, I think is it's a mistake in terms of what we put in the curriculum. I think the curriculum, mm. you know, the, the knowledge that we put in the in the curriculum should be knowledge that stands that has stood the test of time is really good knowledge. But that doesn't mean in the classroom you you don't connect it to the people's experiences but then the point is to take them from their experiences to abstract ideas and you know to look at things in very different ways that they haven't considered such that they can then reflect on their experiences and 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 see things differently and we we call that transformation that's the sense in which you know knowledge has a transformational effect upon the individual because it means you you know once you've seen the world differently you can't go back Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it takes you to a different place. It takes you to different, gives you a different perspective, and you you start to see things differently. And that's why it's powerful, and that's why education is wonderful. But yeah, I think it has become more, you know, subject to society's demands. You know, we've had you know key skills that there should be key skills for the economy. You know, literacy has been a big thing, and you know none of these things are a problem if they're I think if they're taken in or they're addressed in the right in the right way but there's a danger some of these things take over the curriculum these societies need so something like climate change you know some people think that the the curriculum should be for solving the problem of global warming which i think is a mistake because that should be something that is considered but through a disciplinary lens okay and we don't want to tie the curriculum to external things which because otherwise it, it inhibits your ability to look at it in a free and open way and and to consider alternative possibilities. And so, you know, speaking of, you know, societies changing and so forth, like 2020 has been a really rough year for schooling and schools and teachers and students alike. 
Do you have a sense of how teachers think about teaching geography online or internet learning? There's been a lot of that, obviously, particularly in, in the summer. You know, and, and I think quite a few lessons have been learned. I think there's you know some positive lessons that there's, there's scope for you know doing homework. I think you know more interactively, and I think you can direct students to go to you know particular online resources. You know, you can have quizzes that are you know, marked online and so forth. And, you know, you can and you can have interaction with, with teachers. But on the other hand, it's it's no it's no substitute for the classroom because in the classroom you have people's attention, you have them in front of you, the, the teacher can, you know, command the room and really get a sense of the of the students and their interaction in a much more meaningful way. That that face to face contact is, you know, and plus the children are learning from each other. So that dialogue in the classroom I think is is critical. I think we've learned that. But that doesn't mean there isn't a role for online as well. But, you know, day to day and the absence of schooling, we've, we've seen just how important it is. And it's been very difficult for teachers, obviously, you know, not being able to be in school. And even with the return to school, there have been a lot of restrictions on taking books in. We've had children out of school. Obviously, it's been a really, really challenging year. I think teachers have done a fantastic job in getting to the end of the autumn term. And yeah, I think, you know, students are very appreciative of, of all the work that, that teachers have done. Mm-hmm. And my final question, I'm wanting to get a, uh, your input on this. It's kind of looking at the impacts of COVID as well on teaching in the past year or so. In particular, I read your latest blog on TeachWire looking at GCSE exams for teenagers and the interesting perspective that you presented. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, as I said, it's it's a tricky one because there's no doubt uh, students who are coming up to taking GCSEs and A-levels next year have had more disruption than you know any other year group prior to this. But also, I, I guess I felt a bit mixed about it because, as we said in the book, there's in too many schools, there is too much teaching to the test going on. And that's partly because, you know, government Ofsted have, have been for years been, you know, placing a huge emphasis on exam results. Mm-hmm. And so if you measure teachers in schools through exams and their results, it's not surprising that they tend to place too much emphasis on those over bigger educational aims that, that I, I talked about earlier about character formation and, you know, subjectification of the individual and so forth. So, but on the other hand, exams do have a role. Okay. And, you know, as we saw last summer, when we don't have exams, it becomes difficult. We, you know, we're left with teacher assessment, and teachers are not the best people to assess um, students because they are their teachers, and they are invested in how well they do, and they want to succeed, and so they might be a little bit biased when it comes to assessment, and that's understandable. And that's why in many in many domains, you know, we separate that teaching and the judgment, the validation of your qualifications. So. If you're taking a driving test, if you're taking a music exam, a dance exam, you know, usually somebody comes in external to say, okay, yes, we're happy with the level that this student has achieved and they, they can pass the test and move forward. So, you know, it's the same with, with exams. It, it makes sense to have some external assessment. And that's not to say that sort of coursework, there isn't room for coursework, especially in subjects like drama or art. But yeah, we're in a difficult position because we're well aware that a lot of students have missed quite a chunk of the year and some of their learning. So obviously a lot of teachers have said, or head teachers have said, they think, you know, we shouldn't go ahead with exams next year. The government has said we should. And Wales, for example, has also said that they're not going to have GCC and A-level exams. It's, it's a difficult situation. But um, I think what I was trying to say is that we should be trying to give students as normal an experience as possible 
in what is a very disruptive year. And so if you took away exams, you took, for at least as far as students are concerned, because they don't often always see the bigger picture in terms of education and individual formation and so forth. You know, you take away that which they're working towards, you know, that exams are motivating, they teach you to take responsibility for your own learning to an extent, and they're obviously an objective measure because they're external validation. So I think it's, it's a really good thing that you know, the government's going to go ahead with exams. They've suggested some compromise measures, which we could debate, but but perhaps not here. And I think teachers want them to. So most of the teachers I've spoken to about this, yes, there are gaps, and but everyone's working to fill those gaps as best as possible. And, you know, and obviously if there have been significant, someone's had, you know, significant individual problems, they've had the virus or something, you know, then maybe there needs to be room to allow for that. But I think overall, I think it's good to press ahead and say, try and give students a normal experience as possible and give them the opportunity to show what they can do, which is what exams do. Alex, it's been really interesting to talk with you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and sharing your work. We wish you well with your research. It's a pleasure, Kerry. Thank you very much. You can follow Alex on Twitter, alexstandish9, and you can learn more about his research via the links in the episode notes. You can also check out his latest book, What Should Schools Teach?, which is part of the Knowledge and the Curriculum series by UCL Press. It's out now, so check it out. Search for IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts and to find episodes from season one to six of Research for the Real World, as well as other IOE podcasts. We've had some fascinating guests on the podcast, a real variation in topics and expertise across the social sciences and education. And if it is a musical interlude you're after, there's a Spotify playlist too, featuring songs chosen by our guests and the IOE podcast team. All of that is accessible via our UCL webpage, just search Research for the Real World. I'm Carrie Wong, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 